Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and today we are digging back in our archives for another one of our favorite episodes. I don't know about you all, but it feels like our privacy continues to be eroded every single day, especially when browsing the internet. So this week, we're looking back to an episode from April of 2019, where we discuss browser fingerprinting and tracking on the interwebs. With that, let's go ahead and listen on in. And we're not actually going to bash Facebook in this particular news section for Aww. once. <laughs> Instead, we're going to give Microsoft some praise. Hmm. Interesting, right? So Windows announced well, Windows Microsoft that, that candid praise, maybe. No, you know it's good coming to their senses. Yes, Microsoft just announced that with their May 2019 update for both Windows 10 and Windows Server. They're going to drop their password expiration requirements from their password baselines. This isn't like the biggest news that we've covered in a while, but it actually is kind of interesting and brings up some good points, I thought. Um, their theory is... It is kind of big news because if you think about it, when, when experts talk about security best practices, some experts, not all experts, have, have mentioned that you should expire your password every three months, every mm -hmm. two you know, two quarters every year, whatever it is, but they recommend that you expire your password, which means that users constantly or seemingly constantly from their perspective have to keep changing the password. And Microsoft actually, in their announcement for this, called that practice ancient and obsolete as a mitigation attempt uh, with very low value. Because um, really it comes down to when you force your users to change your password over and over pretty rapidly, it really encourages bad passwords. Uh, I'm sure we all know coworkers that when it comes time to change their password, they just increment it by one number, whatever number they have sticking on the end, instead of coming up with a strong, unique password each and every time. I'll admit that there are a few cases where I've had to do that just because this is like before the time of password managers where I needed to continuously change my password. and. It's kind of hard coming up with strong and unique ones over and over. So instead of forcing people to change them every 30 days or every two months or whatever, uh, instead just changing them when, say, there's a major breach or when your company has been breached or using tools that can help identify uh, when a user's uh, credentials may have been a part of another breach to trigger a password reset instead. Uh, Microsoft actually has a tool to help out with this. They call it their Azure AD Password Protection Tool. Um, I don't think it has anything like detecting breaches or whatnot, but it can at least help protect your users from picking poor passwords, things like 123456 or other known bad passwords. Um, another interesting tool that we've talked about quite a few times on this podcast, Have I Been Pwned, uh, Troy Hunt's uh, little pet project. They actually have an API where you can query the API or use it offline in order to check as a user is setting their password if it has been a part of a breach previously and then prevent them from using that password, which I actually think is a really interesting idea. What are your thoughts on that one, Corey? No, I, I think it's great. Everyone should be using that. Cause, and I also think, by the way, group policy now allows... One of the main reasons to get people to change their passwords regularly if, is if they're using really bad crackable ones. One, changing your password kind of encourages people to use really bad crackable ones because if you have to keep changing it, you're just going to add a one to the end or do something stupid and easy to remember because you're sick of changing it every time. But two, 
you know, if you're if you have one solid strong password, there's really no need to change it unless you know for a fact it's being compromised in some way. Yep. So the fact that Windows is actually I, I there's probably few Windows organizations that don't use group policy to enforce password length, special characters, stuff like that, and not using the same password. Like if there's a password that's been used, you know, in the past five password changes, not using that. So there's, I just don't get the point of having to change a password if you're actually following password best practices. I and agree. we've got, well, we'll get to the best protection soon. Yeah. And of course, you can render a lot of this. Uh, unnecessary just by using tools like multi-factor authentication, which I think you were just about to hint into. Yes. I mean, then what's if you're using a relatively strong password and you have multi-factor, the loss of a password isn't the end of the world. And if you have tools like Have I Been Pwned to show when a password has been compromised, it's still relatively easy to change that password just to make sure your second factor is updated. Exactly. So still cool news coming from Microsoft. Uh, they said it's the May 2019 update where you can expect that change to come in. Obviously, there's still like some compliance requirements, I'm sure, that have minimum or maximum password longevity times or whatever. Yeah. Hopefully, those get updated in the future, too, as well. By the way, what's sad about this and why I think it's a backhanded compliment is I actually think smart security experts, people that have cared about authentication security, have known for at least five, if not even seven or ten years, that password expirations are kind of dumb. And the main reason Microsoft is finally admitting to that, the main reason this is a story, is their default in in-group policy, I believe, was forcing this expiration regularly, and they're changing their default. While I give Microsoft the pat on the back, it's it's kind of late, guys. Yeah, but, you know, better, better late, late than, than never. never. <laughs> Stereo! <laughs> Jinx! You owe me a Coke. Uh, and with that, I guess I kind of lied. Because in our main section, we are going to kind of bash Facebook a little bit. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't. Let's go ahead and jump in. You've probably had a time where, you know, you've been chatting with your friend about something. Uh, I'll use the example, a new waffle iron. I was looking recently into picking up a waffle, waffle iron and I chatted with my friends about it. And then the next time I logged into my social media account, half of the advertisements on there were for new waffle irons. This, you know, it's kind of concerning and it makes you wonder how does this actually happen? And really information on the internet is much more connected than you might think. Uh, companies out there have built entire profiles around you where they can understand all of your preferences or your behavior really just by the data that you produce in applications that you use and websites that you visit. So in this section, we're going to dive into how does this process actually work and what are some of the consequences? And if it concerns you, uh, what are some of the tools that you can use to kind of keep yourself safe and your personal information safe and maybe expand your privacy a little bit out there on the big, scary Internet? And I guess the first thing we have to jump into is how do these companies keep track of you when you're not logged directly into their website? So if I go log into like homedepot.com, with my account, they know who I am. As I browse through their store, they know exactly who I am because I have an authenticated session with them. But if you visit a website that you're not logged into, a lot of the times they can still get a really decent picture of who you are based off some of the metadata around your connection. Uh, this process is called browser fingerprinting. 
And really it comes down to your browser and your connection to a web server has a lot of basic characteristics that they can use to build a fingerprint on you that is somewhat unique or at least bucketed down to a small group of individuals that lets them track you across different sessions. Uh, some of these things that they can track, the most obvious one is the IP address that you're connecting from. Uh, my house has a, it's not a static IP, but it's a relatively consistent IP where so long as I connect from there, uh, they can assume that me or at least one of my roommates or something are the people connecting to the site. Outside that, they can use things like your browser software and its version. Uh, your browser actually tells web servers some, uh, what version it is and what it's running using a attribute called the user agent header within HTTP connections. Um, they can also query what plugins you have installed in your browser. They can look at the time zone that your browser is using. They can use JavaScript to check a lot of other things like the platform. So they can even figure out if you're on a Mac or a Windows computer, which chipset you're using, your screen resolution, what graphics card you're using. All of these are just individual little factors where across the population of the world, they can you can get a pretty unique picture of an individual person by pairing them all together. And by the way, this is scary. We're describing it as though it's scary, but all of that stuff does have legitimate purpose. Like uh, back in the day of lots of different browsers and IE5 versus when Chrome and Firefox were first coming out in Netscape, they all had little picadillos, little kind of issues with rendering. So Internet Explorer had issues? <laughs> yeah. So knowing the browser type that's coming to your website, knowing the display resolution, if you're creating these dynamic websites, nowadays we have mobile, what are they called, mobile responsive websites, which know you're on a mobile, so we'll change the look and feel of the website to, to respond to that. There are legitimate non-hacky purposes to actually be monitoring all that stuff. On the flip side, if all that data gets into the hands of the wrong person and or is uh, suddenly a business person wants to use it for more revenue, that's when I think you're going to get to. And even outside of privacy, you're right, there's been some reports for like Google and Firefox. Google's been intentionally trying to sabotage people visiting their services through Firefox. Uh, using when using versions of say like JavaScript that don't work with Firefox or reportedly uh, using the user agent to serve up older versions of Gmail so that users on these competing web browsers receive a more poor experience and are more uh, inclined to switch over to Google's web browser Chrome instead. So even outside privacy, there are still concerns around this. And obviously, I mentioned these characteristics together can narrow you down to a, a subset of people. But there's actually even more interesting ways that you can narrow down a visitor to just a single unique person. Uh, the most obvious one is one you've probably noticed, even if you aren't a real techie person. If you're not a techie person, props for listening to our podcast, by the way. <laughs> but uh, you're probably used to these days now, every time you go to a website, a banner popping up saying, hey, we use cookies to improve your experience. And Cookies kind of get a, a bad rap because they do have a quite a bit of power, but they actually have, like those other things, legitimate uses too. Uh, if you're not a web person, I guess we should go over what cookies are. They're yummy things that the cookie monster eats while going nom, 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 nom. There we go. So let's move on to how they're used. <laughs> <laughs> now, so cookies really are just a, a key value pair that your browser can use. Uh, when you go to a website, um, your browser will request content from that page. 
And then the web server, along with the content of that page, can send down a cookie to your browser for it to store. And I mentioned it's a key value pair, so it's got a name and then it's got a value, some sort of contents or data stored within it. And your browser actually saves that cookie to your hard drive so that it persists through closing your browser and reopening it. That way, each time you visit the page, your browser can send back that cookie with whatever its data is, and the web server can use that to build a better experience for you. Um, some of the things that are in the cookie, obviously there's the data value, which can be like a session ID so that you can stay logged in even when you close your browser and reopen it. Uh, there can be preference settings. So if you like light mode versus dark mode on a website, even without logging in, you can toggle that and have it saved in a cookie. Uh, other attributes to it, there's an expiration time. So cookies are only supposed to last a certain period of time, which is very important with session IDs. You don't want to have an authenticated session open for ever. Uh, you usually want to limit that to a few hours or a few days. Uh, you can set a restricted cookie. A month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can restrict a cookie to only work on a specific domain. So you mentioned Facebook, a Facebook authentication session. Uh, the, the server can request that the browser not share that cookie with, say, Twitter. Uh, that way, Twitter can't steal session IDs and use them to log into people's Facebook accounts. You can even restrict it to certain paths on a website. So only uh, homedepot.com slash uh, lumber instead of, say, whatever else. Uh, that's a poor example, but whatever, a same path. Uh, there's a attribute to only let it used over HTTPS, which should almost always be set to true these days. And there's also flags that say only allow this cookie to be passed over HTTP, which means it can't be accessed through scripting protocols like JavaScript, uh, which is a really good protection against cross-site scripting attacks stealing your cookies like Cookie Monster. Nom, nom, nom. So that there, you can store... Uh, usually session data is a really uh, common thing stored in cookies. They're used to keep the session over browser stuff, preferences. But a lot of the times, websites can use them to track their users as well. And there's legitimate tracking. So say you go visit a shopping website, you put some stuff in your cart, and you step away from your computer or it restarts or whatever. Uh, when you come back, even if you weren't logged into that website, you can still have the items in your cart to use later. Uh, that's a good use. Bad use, though, they can use it to track a user across sessions and see their behavior, uh, which can lead to privacy concerns, much like that browser fingerprinting. Uh, you can even share, you can set up a cookie to be shared between different domains so they can still track you across multiple domains. So this is kind of why cookies get a bad rap, because they are extremely powerful in what they do. Yeah, the good thing about cookies, though, is they're your browser, the ones you're talking about right now, your browser stores them in a normal place. There's tools to monitor where they are, what's in them, and even delete them. I don't think we should dive into this subject, but I, I think you're going to talk, talk about other ways you can be followed or fingerprinted. But super cookies are another tracking mechanism that are used often. And it's something that ISPs or mobile car or carriers do. And a super cookie is, is not associated necessarily. Usually they use a HTTP header whenever you go to a site. The ISP itself, because they're in the middle of all your connection, a quote unquote man in the middle, they're injecting extra data in some HTTP headers. And, you know, essentially 
telcos, carriers, ISPs are jealous of all the cool things that a website can track about you with a cookie. Now, that website can only, well, actually cookies can be used to track you across the internet. But with super cookies, the ISP can literally track everything you're doing online, all the websites you visit, stuff like that. And I, I believe there's still kind of legal. I do know that in 2014, the FCC fined Verizon something like $1.35 million, which seems like chump change to a Nothing. ISP for, for using super cookies. Uh, but they still exist today. Uh, there's an organization called Access Now, a nonprofit that has a tool called Am I Being Tracked? And basically, uh, some of their study results show that 15.3 of web percent of website visitors are being tracked by these these super cookies. And again, uh, one acronym, if you're a nerd, that you can use associated with super cookies are unique identifier headers or UIDHs. So, super cookies sounds cooler, though. Yeah, super cookies is cool. If, I, if I'm Cookie Monster, a super cookie is like my dream. You know, I'm not normally against people injecting me with cookies, but in this case, <laughs> it kind of makes me upset. Yeah. <laughs> So anyways, I just wanted to bring up super cookies, sometimes also called ever cookies. Yep. So one of the, the plus sides when it comes to privacy with cookies is, as you mentioned, the user is in really full control over them. You can prevent your browser from saving them. There's things you can toggle in them. Uh, a lot of regulations like GDPR require websites to notify you and basically let you opt out of cookies too. Um, so. The, the thing to know about that control is do expect website mechanisms to not work anymore. By yes. maybe not accepting certain cookies, the website may not do certain things that make it more usable. So that's it then, though, right? That means that there's no other way for them to track you? That of course not. They've given up, right? I'm, I'm sure Big Brother doesn't exist and we're all good now. Unfortunately, not the case. There's actually even a... What a surprise! <laughs> really? Mind blown. Yes. There's still a very powerful way to track users across sessions uh, without them having really any say in it through disabling cookies. And it's something relatively new from the last few years or so uh, called canvas fingerprinting. So the latest web standard uh, for website development is something called HTML5. I want to say it's pretty recent, but I, it came out, I'm sure, decades ago. It still yeah. feels pretty new, though. HTML5 is pretty old now at this point. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but HTML5, one of the many additions it has is this type of an element that you can add to a website called a canvas element. And canvases were really designed as a way to um, draw an image onto a web page. So kind of like a real canvas. Shocker. It's like they chose a good name. But... Uh, some researchers, I think out of Princeton and another university, discovered a way to use these canvas elements as a way to track users. And, of course, advertisers and companies that use advertisements picked right up on that and started using that. Uh, one of the ways they do this is they use these canvas elements and have your web browser draw, say, text onto them. And it can be hidden text. It can be really small text text you don't see is something out of the frame, but they draw text onto a canvas. And because of variations in your operating system or your graphics chipset or even the graphics driver, different plugins you have, the output of this will be slightly different, even though it's all the same text that's being drawn. And then there's different um, 
ways that your browser can interface programmatically with these canvas elements. One of them is turning the contents of the element just back into straight data, base64 encoded data. And so they use that to then convert it into data and then they hash it. And so those tiny little elements that get changed based off of your chipset or your browser lead to completely different hashes, which leads to a unique fingerprint for each user based off of their specific computer that they're on. And because of this, they can include these in things like magic pixels or data from advertisers on different websites and track you through as you browse across the internet, even without you logging into things and without using cookies. A really interesting site I found uh, through this research that can kind of show you how this works is a site called amiunique.org, which will show you what your fingerprint is and kind of give you an overview of how this canvas fingerprinting works too. Um, pretty interesting to go see. So how do websites use this fingerprinting? Um, obviously with shopping sites like Amazon, they can track what products you're viewing even if you're not logged in. So say if I go add something to my shopping cart and then remove it because maybe I decided I don't want to buy it right there. When I log back into that site or revisit again, they'll change up their recommended items to say, hey, you were looking at this previously. How about you buy it now? Um, third party sites or sites can also include third party code from like Facebook and Google and other major advertisers to fingerprint your browser as you go through their pages and then use that in advertisements in the future. So. Facebook has this thing called the pixel, which is just a single tiny element that's stored on Facebook servers where anytime you browse to a page on the site, it'll make a request out to that pixel. And now Facebook knows that your browser and your fingerprint has visited this specific page. So they can use that to track your browsing patterns across a lot of the internet because Facebook includes these pixels all over the place as part of their developer toolkits. That means if I go visit like a blog that's offering waffle iron reviews, Google and Facebook now know that I've reviewed or viewed reviews on waffle irons, so I'm probably trying to shop for one, and they can serve up ads that are more relevant to that for me, um, which some might argue are, is very useful. I argue it's incredibly creepy. And Corey's nodding his head in agreement as well. It's right on the edge, right? It's It's creepy and useful. It falls in the category of... I can share my DNA with a health company and they can actually use mass amounts of DNA to find really interesting and perhaps useful things that help research healthcare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet they can also craft a targeted <laughs> using CRISPR and maybe biohacking craft something that targets me, you know. It's very creepy and un unfortunately I think the pendulum is swinging towards companies using it for non-legitimate purposes. Yep. Like I actually like Amazon recommendations. It's useful sometimes to know about a product I might like that I didn't know for about. For some reason, it only ever recommends gummy bears to me though. I wonder why. <laughs> Do you like gummy bears, Mark? Do you happen to enjoy gummy bears? Yes. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. And yet when these companies who already make billions of dollars from their core business want to suddenly grow their stockholders' value and start selling this data to the highest bidder, that's when it just gets creepy and horrible. Exactly. And so obviously if you don't have an account with Facebook, uh, they don't have information on you, but they can still track you by this fingerprint. But if you do have an account with, say, Facebook, and you go browse across the internet, they build this fingerprint, they might not know it's exactly you. When you go log into your Facebook account, 
they will then see that same fingerprint, match it up with all that data they have, and now they have a exact knowledge of exactly who you are as you browse across the internet and they see this fingerprint. Little you can do except delete Facebook. <laughs> Sounds good. Exactly. So except didn't you bring it back, Mark? <laughs> I did, unfortunately, for other projects I'm working on. Um, so we mentioned that like there's a concern with companies stop shaking your head at me, producer. <laughs> uh one of the big concerns with this is these organizations are gathering a huge amount of data on you and they're obviously storing it for their own uses. So what happens if they become breached and suddenly this giant profile of exactly what you are shows up on the internet for bad guys to use? Uh, an extreme example of this is what if they're keeping track of government agents and like suddenly a hostile uh, country can follow around exactly what a, a U.S. agent is doing on the internet. It can be pretty scary stuff. So, how do you protect yourself against this kind of tracking? Uh, cut the wire. Just cut the wire. Don't go on the internet. A bunker. Problem Somewhere solved. in the desert. Throw your With phone a water away. source. <laughs> this is Corey in 10 years once he's had enough of the internet. And 10 everything. years? Why'd you think I bought that big house? I'm kidding. <laughs> God. <laughs> there are things you can do to help yes, keep yourself joking. safe from, without having to cut off the entire internet, though. Like, at the most basic thing you can do is install things like script blockers and ad blockers. Obviously, having an ad blocker and a script blocker adds to your fingerprint profile on the internet, but it can kind of hamstring a lot of the tools that these organizations do to try and track you just by blocking the scripts that they're doing. Um, now, you mentioned earlier, disabling cookies can kind of ruin your browser experience. Blocking JavaScript can tend to do the same thing. Yeah. So you'll run into issues with sites behaving a little funky around that. The neat thing with some JavaScript browsers is they're normally domain-based because one of the ways some of the bad JavaScript works is by you know, sharing information cross domain. So if you don't disable JavaScript for facebook.com, its functions will work, including any tracking it will, can do. But sometimes this tracking is done through ad partners and all kinds of partners. If you go to the average site nowadays or a, a site that has a crap load of partners like uh, CNN, you'll notice that you're loading 60 domains and a lot of their analytics and tracking capability come from third parties because CNN's web developers don't want to build in all this tracking capability. Mm -hmm. They go to Google Analytics. So it's possible to allow CNN functions to work, but not Google Analytics. Now, you might think that something like incognito mode will keep you safe from this. Uh, it doesn't. Really, all that does is prevent your browsing history from getting saved. So it'll protect you from things like cookies, but it doesn't protect you from the other fingerprinting methods that we've talked about. So don't rely on that. Uh, there are browsers that are built for privacy, though. I actually use one of them personally, uh, one I'd recommend called Brave, um, which was designed with ad blockers and tracking blockers built right into it. It's actually kind of cool, um, and it works very well. Uh, even more hardcore than that, the Tor browser, so the same browser you can use to access the dark web is obviously very privacy focused. And it includes a lot of the same tracker blockers, things like that. It can even block canvas elements. It notifies you if a website tries to read a canvas element, similar to how fingerprinting works. And you can block that too. Um, on the even more extreme end, there's entire operating systems built around privacy. 
Uh, Tails is one that you've mentioned a few times, Corey, offhand of loading up Tails to go visit something. It's an operating system built and designed just and to it, be a... it has some of the tools you talked about built in. I mean, yep. it uses the things like Tor, and who knows, by now maybe it added Brave. So it's... But if you're really freaking paranoid, you can boot up a clean operating system every time you do something you don't want to be followed. So if privacy is a concern for you on the internet, there are ways to help at least mitigate some of this tracking that goes on. I, I won't say that they're all 100% effective, because as every single mitigation comes in, there's some new way to get around it for them. For instance, uh, Tor, the Tor browser is essentially a repackaged hardened Firefox. But when Firefox has security vulnerabilities, you know, it, the Tor browser may be vulnerable for a while until the public knows about it. And often these vulnerabilities are information disclosure issues. So yep. there's been cases where Tor has had to update their browser to avoid some new leak. But obviously, the everyday person's not going to be able to keep up with that. So why not just get the Tor browser people to take care of your privacy for you? Yeah, I agree with that. Until the U.S. government infiltrates them and the Tor browser becomes the man in the middle for all of our traffic. Who's to say they haven't already done that, man? <laughs> exactly. Wake up, sheeple. Tor exit nodes. <laughs> Need I say more? Exactly. <laughs> government. <laughs> So any other privacy tips you want to toss off, Corey, before we sign off for today? Unplug the cable. Go live in a bunker. Got in it. Invest in solar panels. <laughs> what if those solar panels have tracking in them too, though? Actually, there was a great black hat talk talking about the VPN back to a Chinese company required for the solar panel. Bottom line, nothing is safe. <laughs> <laughs> We're all screwed. Happy Friday. I'm sorry, Monday. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. It's not that bad. Uh, oy. Well, look into script blockers, ad blockers, Brave, other browsers. Firefox actually is adding a lot of privacy features, too. Um, there are ways to at least make it a little bit better for you, but don't expect it to go away. So question for a part two. You did a great job of explaining why your search for waffle irons results in a lot of ads. What about when you're walking around your house and you say waffle iron out loud with an Alexa in the background? Let's what cover that in then? another part. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on the 443. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everyone. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or recommendations for future episode topics, reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdapt. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>